On April 30, 2012, SDCF hosted a one-on-one conversation between Walter Bobby and Sam Gold, moderated by John Clinton Eisner. They discussed their career trajectories and their artistic processes. This event was sponsored by A Summer of Theatre and Film at Southampton Arts. Hello, I'm SDC Director Kathleen Marshall, and you are listening to SDCF Masters of the Stage. This program is produced by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation and presented by the American Theatre Wing. The SDCF has released these archives in an effort to further education regarding the crafts of direction and choreography. Because this program was not initially recorded for the purpose of broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. Portions of the conversation may have been edited to improve the overall quality of the broadcast. So we're going to take uh, about an hour or so and talk with these amazing folks. Uh, and uh, then at the end, we'll take about 20 minutes and, and uh, so you can think of some questions you might have. Um, but I'm particularly thrilled uh, to be here because I've kind of committed the last decade and a half to sort of the, the very, you know, um, early wooden blocks part of making plays, you know, the very earliest part where people are taking the kinds of risks that you can only take when there's not a lot of financial stake. Uh, and so it's really exciting to me to talk to a few people, a couple of people who actually uh, take very seriously that early part of the process, have significant relationships with people in very early uh, stages of their development, and, and also navigate uh, uh, what is a fairly complex uh, trajectory to bringing works to full production and, and often to smaller productions that lead to larger productions. So uh, today what we're going to focus on at the beginning is uh, a little conversation about how you um, arrived where you are, how you began. Uh, and I thought we would start with uh, you, Walter, and, and if you could talk a little bit about, um, you know, when was the moment that theater actually sort of arrived in your life, and uh, and and you know how did you actually enter into it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was a very small child. Um, there was no theater in my family. My family was not involved in the theater. I grew up in uh, in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and uh, if there wasn't any theater there, it wasn't very good. Um, uh, but I was sort of a ham. I always was in the school show, and I remember singing, I'm a little Dutch boy in kindergarten. Uh, and I was always, I don't know why I was attracted to, uh, to theater, but I was. And, and whatever sort of entertainments were going on in the community, I was part of, and I saw. Uh, I did the plays in high school. And in college, I was initially, a, 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 believe it or not, a business major, and then I realized that that was ridiculous. And I, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I changed to literature and philosophy, and then I finally went to graduate school in, in theater. But I remember coming to New York City um, to see the World's Fair, and that weekend I saw two Broadway shows. I saw The Glass Menagerie with Maureen Stapleton, and the original production of How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. And I practically had to hold myself in my seat and I just thought I have to come back here and this is what I want to do. And I just I, I tell you although I had hand around and done school plays and all that stuff, I knew in my heart that day that I, I was going to come back here and I was going to try to do this. And then I went to graduate school uh, in, at Catholic University in Washington 
um, got my equity card the summer between uh, first and second year of graduate school at the Aldi Theater, mm. getting my hair dyed red and playing Clarence in Life of Father. And I came to New York City with a Ford Falcon, $200 and an equity card. Right. So, and then I just started. Uh, I don't know why, I, I seem to, uh, I could sing, so I ended up doing a lot of musicals at first. Uh, my first job was the, uh, the end of the run of the understudy for Dames at Sea in the original production. And after that, I did my, I got my first Broadway show, and it lasted one night. <laughs> it's called Frank Merrill. And it's the only theater poster I've ever kept. <laughs> it's in the bathroom, and it's a reminder. <laughs> and, and then I got the lead in an off-Broadway musical called Drat, and it lasted one night, and I didn't bother to keep that. I don't know if we had a poster for that show, but it didn't stop me. <laughs> I, um, uh, anyway, that's how, that's how I, I, I started. So when you when you arrived in, in, in New York, you were in college when you came to the World's Fair, and, and, and you were taken by the theater, and when you came back, you came back well, as, an, as an actor. It's your cursing a bunch of guys, we should go see some shows while we're in town. <laughs> and, uh, and so we did, but it wasn't, I didn't initiate that. And what, what was, what was uh, how were auditions, uh, I mean, what was it like to audition? How did you get roles then, and how do you compare that to how actors get roles well, we now? we got off the covered wagon. <laughs> <laughs> and we pitched our tents. Um, you actually auditioned back then. Yeah. Uh, and you actually auditioned for shows that were going to be done. Uh, they weren't workshops, they weren't grand. You actually went in and you auditioned for a part in a Broadway show a part in an off-Broadway show. That's, uh, I remember the original auditions for Greece. They saw, I think, between 1,600 and 2,000 people. And, and we just kept coming back and coming back. I remember the third time they brought us back, we were at some theater, and there seemed to be 60 of us. And they kept us there all day, and they would hire uh, us up and <coughs> lead us out. And, and uh, it just went on forever. And then they called me back again a fourth time. But then when you got the show, you actually went to rehearsal <coughs> on a, a union contract and, and, and did a show. So it was very, very difficult. You actually got backstage, you stood in line, and you auditioned. And I, I didn't have an agent. I actually got backstage. I went to open calls, and somehow I got jobs. Do you see that there are, is a kind of difference in the outcome now because auditions happen uh, differently? Uh, <laughs> auditions is often, often. <laughs> you have to hope. Yeah. Often. Uh, do, uh, is it, I mean, uh, it, what's, what's lost when that, when, when that doesn't exist anymore, that kind of process? Oh, I don't process. think anything's lost. I think it's yeah. just different. That's just it's the way different. things were there. The economics were different. You could right. do, I mean, the original budget for for Greece was, I think, $125,000, you know. Uh, so there wasn't $15 million on the line doing a new musical. And now you're seeing many more people who are actually, you know, you can see them on the Internet, you can see them in television and film, so there's a lot more transparency in a way. Yes. And also, you know, I had the good fortune when I came to New York where there, and there always is that show where there's an entree for new people into the theater. Uh, and when I came here, it was, you know, if it was... Greece and Godsville, where people didn't even have union cards, could actually, they needed new young talent. They just said the casting director sit at Port Authority and see who's getting off the bus. <laughs> <laughs> and while we were there, no, it was interesting because while that, I, I mean, I don't want to talk about the kind of Greece that was, but you know, the people who came through that show, 
my understudy was Treat Williams. Yeah, he was replaced by Richard Gere. I mean, <laughs> and then Richard, Richard went on, and everybody went crazy. And he got the lead in London, but on and on. Peter Gallagher, all that sort of generation of young leading men who could sing even a little. It was one, it was their first it was their first job. You know, those the, all those guys who do Pippin. So let's talk a little bit about how you, when did it occur to you that you wanted to direct? And, and I know you've done some writing and adapting too, but, but what, what uh, sort of tipped you into that? I, because I found myself wanting to hang out, instead of going out with the cast, I always wanted to hang out with the writers. I, I always just uh, admire that uh, people sit down and create whole worlds and, and Capture the human spirit and observe human behavior and, and illuminate it. And I just, uh, you know, I feel that I, I found, I always wanted to do it, I just didn't have the opportunity. I find the experience of an actor is very, very deep, but it's narrow. And I like, I like helping to tell the entire story. I like working with designers. I like trying to make, be part of the, the larger journey. And I always wanted to do it. I always wanted to do it. I couldn't. Uh, I worked all the time as an actor, and it's very hard when you I, when you get identified as an actor to change that. In fact, for I mean, I did so many musicals I couldn't get a play, and I just stopped auditioning for musicals for five years until I did a bunch of plays. Mm. I just wouldn't do it. And the only way to change it right. was to was to stop it. Right. And um, when I wanted to direct, no one would hire me. So a friend of mine wrote a play. And uh, it was a one-act play that happened at lunch, and I went to Triad, which is now Triad. And I said, can I do this at brunch on Sundays? And the guy said, yes, you can. And um, I hired myself. And I thought <laughs> I, I had never studied any, I had never studied very much about business and theater, and I decided to uh, to not spend my own money on the play. I decided we had a $1,000 budget. And I got five friends to each uh, invest $200. And I put together a budget. This friend of mine said, if you know what to do with a dollar, you'll know what to do with a million. And I think I paid myself $18. And I paid the cast. And I, 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 I gave myself sort of a little teaching, uh, a little lesson. And, um, and I directed the play. It was kind of good. We sort of sold out. Um, and I returned about $186 of everyone's $200 investment, so I really understood, started to understand the responsibility of that. Um, I, you know, I just sort of, I'm like the, you never know poster child. I just <laughs> keep stumbling around and figuring it out. But so you actually, I mean, it's interesting that, that producing and directing, in a way, started at the same, I mean... You, it did, yeah. so when something like Encores came around, I sort yeah. of had an understanding of, of, of what that responsibility right. was, and... and Suddenly, someone gave gave me a theater and gave me a budget. I never put it together, and I was just thrilled. I had a good friend who was in the uh, directing program at the University of Washington, and and they gave them the largest theater for their their one of their big productions, and they gave them a one hundred dollar budget, and that was that was the the, the task. Yes. Yeah. So well, I'm doing a workshop now. The vineyard, and believe me, we have a hundred dollar budget, <laughs> so you know how they do that. But you know, I think uh, to answer your question, I was doing. Um, Guys and Dolls, and I had a great part in a big Broadway hit. And they offered me a review of Rainbow and Stars to direct a Rodgers and Hammerstein review. And 
I knew I wanted to direct because I went to Jerry Zags and I said, would you give me a leave of absence? So it wasn't like being an out-of-work actor looking for something right. to fill the time. I had a great part in a hit and I had an opportunity to direct this little review and Jerry gave me a three-week leave of absence. For some reason, every critic came and said I could direct and then and, and, and changed everything. So I've just been very lucky. And, and, and even before you tried it, did you know that you could, I mean, were you watching people around? I've, people? Always, I've always worked with directors as good as Sam. I mean, from right. when I first came here, one of my first jobs was understudying the Grass Harp and the great Ellis Rabb as mm. the director. Mm. I've watched and worked with Dan Sullivan, Jerry Gutierrez, Jerry Sack. I mean, I have had the privilege of being directed by amazing people. I've been in class, as in, I've been in directing class all the time in my back. So let's let's uh, catch up a little bit with Sam. Let's uh, not do that. Keep <laughs> <laughs> asking all the questions. But My biography is so much less interesting. <laughs> but but uh, it's interesting to me. Uh, I, you're not. I did not. I was not in Greece. It did not happen. <laughs> Happy Rolf and not the mooning jam of Rydell High. <laughs> <laughs> I, have say, I have to say that, that I was uh, doing a little bit of, of research for tonight, and I, I clicked on, uh, on YouTube, and there's an incredible uh, piece that you should take a look at, which is uh, the, um, the benefit for the uh, Equity Fights AIDS this year, and, and it, it's a tribute to Greece, and it has... A, a lot of the original cast. Yeah, sure. we had a lot of the uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, a lot of the original cast and the current cast, and it's a wonderful medley. And it's it's I was very moved. I watched it, and I watched it again with my wife. So. <laughs> um, but let's talk a little bit about just you know how did you you know where was theater in your mind and you know when you were young and and what turned you on to it and and then how did you sort of move into it as a career. Yeah, I, I grew up in uh, Westchester, like an hour north of New York City, in a in a in a town that I now affectionately t- uh, called the capitalist training ground. It was <laughs> it was like it was a suburb for you know bankers and lawyers to commute into New York, and and it was really like kids who grew up there, you know, you were really thought a lot about following in their family's footsteps and, and commuting into New York to do business and I just felt really like a fish out of water and I, I felt very alienated in that environment and uh, my uh, my mom was uh, a, a sort of uh, a, a painter who never got to have a career as a painter and so when I was a kid I just I wanted to be an artist in some capacity but I had no skills and uh, I tried to pick up a paintbrush and I couldn't do it and I, I was just sort of like a I, I I was a I knew I wanted to have some creative pursuit and and uh, and I sort of happened upon acting when I was in high school as a as a way to sort of express myself artistically and uh, and and that you know like I think you know everyone in the theater that 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 was sort of the hook in um, I never went to theater I never I never cared about theater I never I didn't have my my aha moment seeing a musical in New York I sort of was like. I was just trying to get away from the kids I didn't want to hang out with in high school. <laughs> um, and, uh, and from there, I, you know, I started acting in high school and fr- in, a, in a sort of strange uh, turn of events that, that um, is t- w- very uninteresting for, 
for the podcast. Um, I, I, I wound up, um, our family wound up moving into Manhattan, and I all of a sudden, in, for high school, when I, when I was 15, was uh, uh, had a lot of access to, to the arts, and I had sort of gotten the acting bug, and so I started... I got. I was just a really ambitious kid, and I I felt like you know I should get to take over the world at that age in any in any artistic pursuit. So I started, you know, g- uh, reading backstage and going out in auditions and trying to you know just sort of cheat the system and get get famous at age 15. And I and I and I actually wound up um, uh, uh, in college. Uh, acting in a lot of plays and directing some plays and getting a couple of little professional acting jobs that very quickly um, uh, uh, it, it made it clear that I that directing theater was a really good match for my temperament and for how I wanted to how I wanted to engage in this this thing of trying to express myself even though I had no skills because because I, I had no skills as an actor either. <laughs> um, but what what skills did you not have? <laughs> I was a terrible actor. I was actually um, I, I was in auditions. I was in auditions at Lincoln Center last year and um, and. Uh, uh, sitting with the cast, the Lincoln Center Theater casting director, and uh, an actor who was in um, one of the only plays I ever did as an actor came in and sort of outed me as an actor. He was like, "Oh, I haven't seen you since 1998 when we were in this play together." And and Daniel Sui, the casting director, just looked at me like, "Wait a minute!" And he went into his office and dug through the little like index cards that he wrote all of his mean notes about uh, actors on on their you know pre-screens I had when I was in high school somehow bullied my way as a kid like without an agent or anything I was just uh I just you know went to open calls and and backstage and stuff and I wound up pre-screened for the very smallest role in the Lincoln Center production of Arcadia so he, he sort of has like hmm. three or four lines, Augustus, Gus. And, uh, and so from that audition in which I spent a, a weeks trying to get a British accent down with a tape, <laughs> Daniel Sui had written on his index card, 16, looks 13, uh, indicates too much, not really an actor, or something like that. <laughs> and he gave me the card. <laughs> Do you think he's ever done that with anyone else? I, he was. He was lit up. Like, when, when he realized that it was me, he was very delighted. And then when, when he saw that he had written something mean about my acting, he was, he's a sweet, sweet man, but I think he did enjoy it. Um, uh, so, so, but anyway, what wound up happening, this is actually, this is a, a nice story, is that I, the one play I, I, I was in, I was a replacement understudy in the Broadway revival of The Diary of Anne Frank. And I went on every night as a, as a, a Nazi user pushed Anne Frank down the stairs. <laughs> you know, she's like weeping and she has the diary and I push her so the diary sort of falls. Um, and, the, you know, and that's sort of how the play ends. And, and, um, and uh, so, every, so, so for a few months I had sort of achieved this dream of being on Broadway and I was like, had a swastika and, <laughs> and as I left the theater people just hated me. Um, and uh, 
And so, <laughs> it didn't seem like a great career for me. <laughs> but, uh, but also, um, Sound um, like nicely, nicely. I know. That. Uh, on that play, um, one of the actors, um, uh, uh, Austin Pendleton, who's who's playing uh, the dentist in Anne Frank, was while acting in Anne Frank, was directing a production, an off-Broadway production of The Seagull. And I was just so fascinated by the fact that he could do that, that he was, you know, he, he wasn't just, you know, playing video games all day before he showed up at his 7.30 curtain. He was kind of like, he was an artist. He wanted to, exp- he had stories he wanted to tell and things he wanted to do, and he cared about Chekhov, and, and, and even though it was really grueling schedule, he would direct all day, and and do the show at night, and I just really admired it, and I wound up in his dressing room a lot, sort of chatting about Chekhov, and I was, I was in college when I, when I was doing this play, and I, I had to write a lot of papers to make up for all the classes I was missing for doing this play, and he sort of talked to me about, about I wrote a paper about the group theater, and he told me stories of Lillian Hellman, and, you know, he sort of, he sort of got, you know, talked to me about directing, and he sort of, he sort of, by the end of that play, I said to myself, I could do this. Like, this actually seems much more like who I am and what I have to offer. And after that, I did that play, I sort of applied for some sort of directing internships and sort of got into directing and went back to college and directed plays at college. And then for about a year, when I finished college, I, I, I tried to keep acting. You know, I had sort of gotten an agent out of doing Anne Frank, and I, 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 I sort of sort of pursued it for a little while, did a couple other things, and I sort of fatefully, the one time I booked a, a, a Law & Order um, <laughs> was the tech of a, a showcase. I was, I, I had sort of raised the money myself to do, you know, uh, like a obscure German play at a downtown theater and, and try my hand at directing, and, and I, 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 I had to miss my own uh, load in and tech to shoot a Law and Order because I thought I'm not going to turn down this Law and Order episode and the money. And when I got back to the theater after the Law and Order shoot, I quit. I like called hmm. my agent and I was like, I don't, I don't, I'm not an actor. I don't want to do this. You said something about temperamentally directing suited you. What, what do you mean by that? Um, it has a lot to do with. Um, liking bossing people around uh, in, a, in a gentle way, and uh, no, yeah, no, I think yeah, I just I, 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 the 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 life of an actor is a, the life of um, of uh, being in someone else's story and, and and really enjoying the idea of taking on embodying someone else's story, and I didn't like that. I just was like always seeing things from the outside. I, I remember during Anne Frank when I was like a really, you know, I was an obnoxious, pretentious kid, and I would sit backstage and I was really angry because they used the real names of all of the people who, you know, it's a true story, and they used all the real names, you know, the Van Dans and the Franks, except um, the dentist. They call him Dr. Dussel, which uh, I think means like Dr. Idiot. And his real name, he has a real name, he's a real guy, you know. Uh, uh, and uh, I remember sitting backstage and being like, if I was 
if I was telling this story, I would not accept this, that you could take the truth of these people's lives who, who went through all this suffering and then just like not follow through with calling the guy by his real name. This is d- dumb stuff like that where I, I, I was so angry about it. And I think that isn't, that didn't help me as an actor. I don't think. <laughs> it, didn't, it, it didn't make me a better actor. But it did make me a, 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 a director because it, it was a sign that I had point of view and, and, and a way I saw how a story should be told. And, uh, and, and it became very clear that that, that was something I, I had, I, I could put a lot of uh, confidence and, um, and commitment and passion into. So it sounds as though, in your case with Austin Pendleton and your case with Jerry Zaks, that there was a kind of a key person who essentially let you think that you could make this jump to directing or gave you that opportunity. But if you think a little bit beyond that, when you, know, when you actually sort of both, I guess, committed to a career in directing, I mean, I think sometimes people don't necessarily think about it in strategic terms while they're doing it, but... but Clearly, when people move into a career that's sustainable, there is some kind of strategy. There's, some, there's, there's something that allows you to move to that place. If you think back, I'm asking, I guess, both of you uh, the same question. What was it, when did you know that you were a director in a sustainable way, in a way in which you were thinking, because, I, you know, in the, in the dressing room, you, were, you know, you're, you just came down from New Haven and you're going to do another play now. And, you know, you have... Both of you have, have your, your life booked out for some time. And, and, uh, and when was the point where that happened and, and that you knew that that was going to be your, your life? It was, yeah, really easy for me. Uh, uh, it was two, two years ago. Uh, I, I did two plays uh, two seasons, was that two seasons ago that, uh, that people thought the directing was good. And so now I have work. <laughs> Which plays? There were pl- there were plays by uh, Annie Baker, Circle Mirror Transformation, and The Aliens. And I, 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 it, you know, I was I would not have known I would have work through, I'd say, this, in, until I did the second one of those plays. And by the time we were in production for the second one of those plays, it was clear that people would ask me to do more. But it was, it's not, I, I don't have the, the long and illustrious career of Walter Bobby. I, I just, I, I have not, I have not, I have not, I have not felt that way for very long. I feel it right now and maybe I'll, and maybe I won't feel it for that much longer. But, uh, but it's not, it's not, I, I, I never, uh, I always really, I always really um, uh, uh, pictured the like the kind of down and dirty struggle of um of wanting to um uh uh ha- pe- for wanting people to think I could really do it and I, I always sort of felt like oh they're the- simultaneously um filled with hubris and uh a- and modesty that that either uh I felt like uh, I'll never work, and I'm so much better than everyone who does. And uh, how could I ever get a chance to do this? I don't know anything about what I'm doing, and I need to spend a whole life in the theater before I'll ever get to work. And then it's only very recently that I 
I moved from that to, oh shit, how do I do all the plays that I have to direct? So in a way, is it fair to say that your, your strategy up to that point two years ago was to just do whatever was interesting to you to, to, to be available to work with writers? I mean, how, how, did, how did you sort of uh, position yourself so that, that because I know in the case of Circle Mirror Transformation, you worked on that fairly significantly over a period of time. But is, is that sort of the strategy was to sort of create a community around you? Or? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, for, for me, it, it's like a lot more about, I, I think it's not a career. It's, a, it's like a summer camp. You know, like really what we do is, is, is hang out with people who we're like-minded with and make stuff with them. And I, I think I never knew whether or not that would pay my bills um, or whether anyone would see it. But, it ne- but that, all of that seems to be sort of less important to me than that I was like, I was hanging out with people. I was, I was saying, oh, I like this or I want that or I care about this. And I was finding that there was other people who agreed with me and then we started making stuff. So, so yeah, I think the reason why I got to do those plays with Annie is that, you know, we hung out and, and we seemed to like some of the same stuff and laugh at the same things and care about uh, stories being told in the same way. And so she handed me 30 pages of a play that she was thinking of throwing in the garbage because, you know, she's self-deprecating and was saying how terrible it was. And I said, don't throw that thing away. I think it's really cool, and let me talk to you about it and work on it with you, and we'll submit it to, you know, developmental places that could help you, you know, have opportunities to see it through to to completion. And then, you know, when she finished the play, we got to develop it over a couple of years before doing it off-Broadway. So that, that is a good lesson that, you know, that uh, you can make, you know, the work that I've made that I think has been good has been made under circumstances of those kind of long, long development with like-minded people. The other good thing about that particular play is that it was one of the rare times when the cast you develop it with stays consistent. That uh, we first, you know, Annie wrote it with some people in mind, we brought a group of people together, and then they did, for the most part, you know, a year and a half of development before we did it off-Broadway. And so both from me and the writer, but also with me and the writer and the actors, there was a, there was a sense of like all of us sort of caring about the same thing and wanting to make this thing uh, together. So, so Walter, I, I, can you address this question of sort of when did you know that you weren't going to just take a leave from acting, uh, but you were actually going to proceed in a career, and you've had such a, a long and successful career that it, it, there's also kind of a story, I guess, about how that career evolves as well. You know, I think my story is the opposite of, of uh, Sam's. I, mean, I, I, mean, I remember going to, uh, being at the opening night of Circle Weird Transformation and saying to Tim Sanford, where is this guy? I have to meet this guy because mm-hmm. I was just so knocked out by play and, and Sam's work. My career was just the opposite. I started out in the commercial theater, and I really wanted to be an artist, and it took a long time. And I was good at that. I was, you know, I could sing and dance, and that'd be, I could be entertaining, and I knew what the mezzanine was, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I still do. 
musical called My Christmas. I said to my agent, I, I have to stop. I just need to go get into the sandbox and start again. And I just wouldn't do any of that work. And uh, David Ives and I went down to to uh, CSC and did three plays in a row, and I did a play for him at the ST, and I, you know, I, I just went back to um, stories that seemed more important to me. And so I went from doing White Christmas to doing a play about Spinoza's excommunication. And nobody knew I could do that, but I knew that I did, and no one could make that happen but me saying, stop, I, will ra- I, I don't want... I, I had the good fortune of having Chicago. I didn't really need to make money, but I had to prove to myself that I could be what Sam knew he wanted to be, which was an artist. I knew I was a handbone, and I knew I was an entertainer, but I felt in my soul unsatisfied with the stories <clears throat> that I was being offered to help tell. I'm going to ask one last question about uh, sort of these career issues, and then you know, those of you in the audience, you can think of career kinds of questions for the end. But um, uh, it's—I work with so many artists day in and day out who are some, sometimes they're you know what, what Arthur Copet told me that that uh, that playwrights either uh, what's the joke? I'm very bad at jokes. Um, uh, you either uh, you can't make a, a living, but you can make a killing. Uh, and and so there's there's something extraordinary about about uh, sort of coming into the the moment of circle mirror transformation, which doesn't happen overnight. It seems like it does to other people sometimes, but it doesn't. Or or into you know what happened. Uh, I was listening, reading, watching one of the interviews uh, about um, um, Chicago and just how every night after night during the uh, uh, during those four first readings, people just you know exploded. But but have you had to deal in your life with, you know, sort of creating a life equation that, you know, that had to do, I mean, obviously you did when you were doing commercials, you were sort of looking at ways to sort of make a living, but, but have you, how, how do you sort of think about either yourselves or other people you know, sort of the, the, the struggle to keep their work going in the face of some of these economic challenges? You know, how have you dealt with those things yourself? How have you advised other people to deal with those things? Because I think that's one of the biggest things that sort of challenges the industry these days. It costs too much to live in New York City uh, and, and, to, and to stay in the theater. Never make a decision based on money. That's my rule. And, and the money's always coming from where I least expected it to come from. Right. And, and, but I never choose something because I think, oh, I've always, whatever, even things I didn't per- succeed with. I, I actually wanted to do. Yeah. You have a thought about that? I just want to keep asking Walter how, how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. Um, I mean, I I'm trying to think about how I what I trying to remember what I even thought would be was how did I think I was gonna live my life. I have no idea why like why I thought that I could actually do it Um, because I do remember having as recently as a couple of years ago uh, like really practical discussions about the other ways to make a living other than in the theater Um, so so it was it's not like I've been in that that delusion 
it wasn't a delusion. I, I, I had to practically figure it out for, for my whole career. Um, you know, and it's still, you know, it's, I, I still don't really know how to make a living in the theater. And I mean, basically, we're, uh, we're all subsidizing the theater by working in it. Um, you know, in other countries, the state subsidizes it, or or corporations are saying subsidize it. But you know, my my paycheck is subsidizing the work I do for the most part because uh, because I'm not I'm not really getting paid a living wage for the most part. I've had a, I, I I have a play on Broadway right now, and that's really great and really lucky, and has been very helpful, but. Um, but uh, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't live in the assumption that I'm gonna uh, have a steady commercial career. So outside of that, when I think about uh, when I think about that as not necessarily being the case, I don't really 100% know how you put it together. Except that it sort of doesn't matter, or else you wouldn't be here doing it. You know, I, I just sort of didn't think about it too hard. I think, you know, I just got finished doing this play, um, uh, Will Eno play. I don't know if any of you know his work, but what he, what he's, all of his writing tends to sort of be uh, about is um, people responding in these really entertaining present tense moments using humorous language. They sort of, they're sort of batting language around in an entertaining way while they deny the the large truth that they're all they could all die at any moment you know that's like I, I, we kept talking about how like human beings as a as a species basically uh, live with the knowledge that like they could get hit by a truck at any moment and yet sort of laugh anyway and, and, you know that that sort of existential sort of or absurdist sort of thought is what rules his plays and I think it, it mu- I mean I think we do an absurdist Thing I think it is a sort of absurdist philosophy to say, yes, I, 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 in the face of you know that that you probably uh, you're living in a city you can't afford, doing something that very few people make a living at, um, that you just like you get up in the morning and do it, just you know, despite that, um, and uh, and uh, and I, uh, I guess I sort of have cobbled it together by working a, uh, an unhealthy amount, you know? <laughs> like, I directed seven plays this year to make a living, you know? Uh, I, I actually take to heart what, what Walter was saying, too, which is that, it, you know, if you focus on the things that actually matter to you, you actually have a little bit of... Yeah, but I think you have amplitude. to, for the most yeah. part, be... What I'm saying is you have to, for the most part, exercise a kind of psychosis in order to... <laughs> you have to say, oh... Despite the fact that there's really the math does not add up, I'm going to not let money rule my decisions, and that is, I, I think at all levels that is incredibly scary. You know, incredibly well, yeah, scary yeah, to walk away from uh, guys and dolls to to try directing and expose yourself to what people are going to say about you trying something different and exposing when you have the safety and success of or, or you're still you're building this this career I'm sure you didn't take for granted that you were building your career as an actor and that's it's an incredibly scary and and sort of psychotic 
<laughs> leap to make. I think that we all make every day. <laughs> yes. But that, that, that's your uh, your uh, your response. No, no, no. I mean, uh, you know, I think when you love this, you're driven by the work. I mean, I I'm always um, I'm always trying to do what I need to learn next. Right. And that's what I uh, that's what I admire since I've started being aware of, of Sam's work is he just, I learned so much watching, I'm not here to do a flattery game here, but I just, I learned so much watching each new project that he does because uh, I, uh, I, I admire it. I admire this. I, I don't want to do what I, what I don't just know. I want to scare myself a little bit. And, I, and each of the last projects I've done, I've not really known how to do them uh, until I've but I've tr- but I believed that the material would teach me. I think this is this is the segue into a, a kind of conversation about process, which uh, I take to mean as how do you choose the work? You know, wh- what do you choose to do? How do you set it up? And what you're saying is very interesting to me. This notion of you know you have a piece of work, and the work is somehow going to tell you how to work on it. Uh, so that's, I guess, what I thought we could start to do. And, and I, I guess this conversation also will include uh, what it's like to collaborate with playwrights, um, what it's like to collaborate with actors over a significant period of time, um, what it means to you to finish kind of you know, a Will Eno piece, uh, and then what do you feel hungry for after that? Uh, if it's not just that you're responding to, to things as they come without even having, you know, sometimes it's, sometimes you're given so many things to, to respond to, you just sort of have to, you know, climb the ropes like Tars, you know, you just have to sort of climb the trees. But, but, uh, but sometimes you have a choice. So uh, how do you, I think it's, why don't we start with you, you know, because you, you came from acting in musicals you, and you began to work in directing in musicals and now you're working on these extraordinarily savvy, smart, uh, uh, language-based pieces with David. Uh, and how do you talk a little bit about those? The interesting thing is, although I was doing musicals, like some of the first, the first things that I was offered to direct was Chris Durang called me and asked me to do um, uh, For Whom the Southern Bell Tolls, EST. Mm-hmm. And it was just, it was just the hit of the festival. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, so even though I, uh, and, 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 and working at the, Theater doesn't exist anymore, but it's top Fontana called the Writers Theater. So that even back then, when I was doing those musicals, I was <coughs> drawn to that kind of work. I think, you know, like Sam, you're lucky enough to have smart and gifted writers who trust you. I mean, I see, you know, especially Anne and the Indians as well. People like the Durang and, and specifically David Eyes, who I think is just wildly gifted. Really, man, I said, why are you talking to me? I mean, he's, he's, he's just a, a scholar and a genius and a wit, and, uh, and he trusts me with his material in a way that is uh, very uh, <clears throat> empowering. You know? But we, uh, and that's, the, that's, that's, that's a real gift. I don't know how that happens, but I've had that, you know, I've had. My list is I'm doing a new play with McNally, working on a new play with McNally. 
to rank my generation of guys. I, you know, I'm very blessed to have that gathering of, uh, of writers who actually think that my opinion is interesting. Yes. And, uh, and, and we have started in some cases, specifically with Phoenix and Fur. So, I mean, the first thing David showed me was that was a deadhead adaptation of, of the uh, Sacre Machzosh novella. And I said, you can't do this. You really can't witness this behavior in Victorian garb. I mean, we really, um, the beginnings of that play are, are quite basic. But we have uh, we have incredible trust uh, of each other's opinion, uh, and I don't know how that happens, but you know it when you're in it. I showed him once a musical I'd worked on for a year, and he returned it to me with four pages of single space type notes that ended with "There is nothing but heartache at the end." Of this. <laughs> <laughs> I had adapted um, uh, Bud Schulberg's "The Face in the Crowd," and he was right. But the point is. Um, <laughs> How does it does it work? Does it work at, at uh, coffee shops in your apartment? I mean, wh- where where do most of these conversations happen? And and do, I know that uh, that uh, sometimes it happens because you set up a workshop and then you set up another. But but talk a little bit about you know uh, you know an example. Of, I mean, even even David's piece. When did did you originally receive just the script and then you met and talked about it? Just what is you know what are some of the nuts and bolts? Supporting it throughout that whole process. Yes, yes, yes. Basically, that is right. 
And, and, how, and can you talk a little bit about, you know, sort of a similar yeah. process I mean, for you? I mean, I, I feel like it's, it's project to project. Like, everything is its own uh, universe, you know? And so no rules. I, I don't think there's, I have a rule that transcends each thing. And I think, you know, what your story is very inspiring in terms of the, the, the risk to, so, to sort of make hairpin turns and try really different work, stop doing work entirely to try different work. I feel like similarly uh, itchy, you know, like I want to do things that are very different from each other. I want to, I like the idea that maybe I'll totally fail at something because it's so... Seems oh, you so. I've experienced it on, on many levels, many times. Um, but but you know I I I I like the feeling of a breadth of ways of working. I don't like the feeling that oh I'm going to approach this one just how I did the last one, and I'll keep that, I'll find that formula, and I'll keep churning things out. That doesn't interest me. It, it would really interest me to feel like I had the balls to do what you're saying and say, you know, oh, you know, people are getting to know me for this, so I'm going to stop it entirely. That seems really cool. Um, and and so, so I, I, I guess I, I feel like uh, my... I, I, did I say that the wrong way? So I feel like, you know, I don't have a good answer to how I work. Because, I, you know, I, I mean, in, in this season I had, you know, a boulevard comedy on Broadway and an incredibly aggressive production of, of a, a, you know, British uh, mid-century, you know, angry revival. So, and a, and a formally inventive new American play by a young writer that I met, you know, smoking pot on a chairlift in Utah. So, you know, um, I, you know, I feel like I, they all come to me in very different ways. But, but what I'd say, you know, uh, that is, um, you know, I, you know, really the that that third scenario is probably the most likely, you know. <laughs> That, that, you know, really, really, I think how I, how, yeah, yeah, you know, like how I met, meet my David Ives is, you know, is I think a lot of it is, you know, seeing each other's work. You know, you, you, you see something that you see yourself in and respond to in some way, and then you seek out the people who made it, you know, you read the playbill and you think, oh, this person did ten things that I loved, I should seek out that person and and so you sort of I think it's kind of like it's like you know evolution by natural selection you know it sort of gets weeded out until people find people that are right for each other I think it kind of works itself out if you have point of view if you have passion and point of view and you have stuff you want to do then you do that, and then you find other people that, that way. And if you don't, then you'll very luckily get weeded out, and you won't do it anymore, and you'll go do something else that will be a lot more um, uh, enriching, probably. But so I think what, I, what, I, what wound up happening to me a lot is I, I would try something, some writer would see it and think, that guy seems like the right 
kind of person for my work, or I'd be at some bar, you know, you know, <laughs> talking about, you know, you know, how I would have done a better job directing that play than, you know, than whoever did it, you know, you know, what, all of them, you know. <laughs> uh, so, and then somebody overhears me bitching about that and thinks, oh, he's, his bitching is very articulate about the theater I should work with that person, or I ha- or I, you know, I uh, stalk someone because I love their work until we finally, I mean, Will is a great example, the play I just finished that opened on Thursday. Will Eno is a writer who, um, you know, I saw a, uh, like an evening of plays at Naked Angels 10 years ago that was like six writers, and he had a little piece in it, and it, like, shot right to me. I was like, this guy and I really share temperament. I love this guy's work. And I spent ten years trying to track him down. I I I I met him a few times, you know, socially. <laughs> <There was> raining <laughs> orders. <laughs> yeah, I I you know I met him a couple times, and I you know I had mutual friends, and then we wound up with the same agent. And I said to my agent, "Listen, this guy, I love his work. Can I work with him?" And he said. No, definitely not. <laughs> you're, you're you're not fancy enough, and I want a fancier director to direct Will's work. And then and then finally, I became fancy enough, <laughs> and and my agent got me the, the 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 job. You know, like so so I you know it happens it happens like that. Or the play I did before Will's, uh, d- the the Dan Lafranc play, The Big Meal, which is the the one I'm referring to, the on the on the chairlift. I was at Sundance um, developing Circle Mirror Transformation. Dan was at Sundance developing another play, and he just liked the way I talked about Annie's play, liked the workshop I did of Annie's play, and he, you know, came after me. You know, so I think I think that that you know it does to me definitely feels like. You know, this that I hold to my summer camp analogy. Walter, how 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 do you date your playwrights? Uh, well, you know, I'm interested. It's interesting. I'm having a really uh, strange date right now. Um, John Kander and I have had this great big success together, but we never really worked together. He <laughs> gave me the opportunity to do his play, and they came to opening night. But basically, he said, "Just tell me who you're casting." But because it was written. He wasn't part of the process, and it was an incredibly trusting thing that he and Fred F. did. So we've had this hit for 15 years, but we never mm. did anything together, really. And now, after working with Fred for probably 50-some years, Fred ceased, and he's working with his 32-year-old short story writer mm. named Greg Peters, who's also written several plays, which are made <coughs> And I'm in the middle of this amazing... And they found each other at Oberlin, because I think John's of the alumni. So there's this 32-year-old playwright, short story writer, and this 85-year-old American master composer. And I'm somewhere in the middle, and I'm watching uh, uh, a man, a great artist being reawakened at this point in his <laughs> life. And it's very moving. And, uh, and, and it's... It's incredible, and also there. These three pieces are all very different. The first one's like our town, and the second one is an absurdist, whack, 
<laughs> and the third one is first naturalistic. And so in terms of process, I can't even direct them all the same way. I feel like I have to go, we have to, we have, to have a different process for each one. It's like I'm doing Our Town, uh, you know, Betty Summer Vacation, and then something by Greg Lucas uh, all the same night. And you don't rehearse those three plays the same way. Right. So, uh, thank God we get to do a lab down in the vineyard where you actually put it in front of an audience for three weeks the critics can't come. <laughs> I mean, the critics of the well, you, you know, our friends will be there, the real critics. I'll be blogging. Yeah, you'll be blogging. <laughs> <laughs> so the opinion will be there, but nothing will be written in the press. And, and, uh, but it will be great to see how this works in front of, a, of an audience instead of that terrible thing where you do a reading one afternoon and right. you work for a, a day and then you and then everybody sits there and decides. Uh, it's, I really feel very lucky about this. And again, like you said, we're supporting it. We have no money. We have a limited budget. Nobody's, you know, but we're there because I... How can you not... If John Kander calls you and says, I want to play for a month, how can you not go there and just listen to his stories and nothing else? So these are three stories by this, by yes, this duo I, that are completely different stylistically. Yes, he's, yeah. he actually, I think he's, I think they're also doing a lab with one of his plays at MTC, and I think his other play is going to open the black, new black box at Lincoln Center. Interestingly, he happens to be David Hyde Pierce's nephew. <laughs> Interesting. And he's a very, very smart, uh, very gifted young writer. But he, he, uh, I think it was initially a short story writer, so he's, they're very much tales that he tells. So I think we're getting close to uh, the time when we're going to open this up to the uh, the audience, but I had one last question, which is that you haven't directed any musicals yet, or but but uh, uh, have you directed some musicals? Uh, I have not directed a, a great American musical, uh, uh, but I have directed a uh, a, a, a a rock. Opera with puppets. That's that. Well, that's. I guess my, my Jolly Ship the Whiz Bang. Did you see that? No, I didn't see it. You would have liked it. It's great. I guess it was a, a, pup, a, a puppet pirate rock odyssey. Is I think how they described it. And so it. it but um. But I and I also I I, I did. No wonder you're broke. And I did. Uh, and and I also directed the Three Penny Opera, so at Juilliard, oh. and uh, and I'm working on developing a couple of How new musicals. I had a great I I it, it was either the best or the worst thing I ever did. It was insanity, uh, uh, and and I and uh, and I love I mean I love the show so much, and I I is there a musical very, you'd like to do? Lots of them, yeah. Well, I'm gonna do a musical. I'm working on a new musical right now that uh, that Janine Tesori and Lisa Crone are writing based on a, a wonderful memoir called Fun Home. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna we're gonna do like your vineyard thing. I'm doing that at the public in the fall. Three three weeks of performances, no press, and then we'll do it again for press once it's ready. Um, but I, I want to do new musicals. Because I love the process of being involved in the, the the writing development. I feel like with Fun Home, they have written so many songs and so much scene work that won't make it into the final show that will uh, inform how I direct it. So like like 
it's like a gift to get to have read all that early material and, and be batting around that early material. It'll make it so I'm actually capable of doing a good job, whereas if they just handed that thing to me when it's done and asked me to direct it, I think I, I'd have a much much harder time. So so that feels very good to me that the way I'll, I'll work on a form that I'm less familiar with is by doing the thing that I am familiar with, which is which is the development process. So, so probably I'll start with the, the new ones, um, with some new ones, but, uh, but I'd, I'd like to do it all. But the reason I brought up musicals and, and, you know, and, it, and uh, even your puppet musical is that, you know, backstage. Even. E- even, even your puppet, yeah, especially your puppet musical. Exactly. But, but that we were talking a little bit backstage about sort of uh, structure and, uh, and, and, and plot and, and uh, other forms of work that, that aren't necessarily driven by conventional plot. And, and can you talk a little bit about, you know, just the, how, how you, I mean, you just were working on Teresa's piece, which is highly plot-driven. Uh, and, and, and you've also just been working on the piece in New Haven, which is not. And, and how does this, how do, how do, the structure or plot or story sort of fit. How do you approach each of those things? I mean, how do you how do you approach something that is that's structured, and how do you approach something that's that's not structured at all? That you have to. I mean, presumably it has to have some kind of structure by the time it goes up. It has to have a beginning, middle, and an end by the time it goes up. But it, it doesn't have an obvious one. Not in that order necessarily. Right. That I have a really pretentious answer to that. So. I was just I was just having a <laughs> I just I was just I'm sorry I'm not asking the question very well I just you know. I, I I just had a meeting with a choreographer and and to uh, and I haven't had a lot of of conversations with choreographers because I haven't worked in 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 dance or music that much and I was sort of developing a sense of of how I would even talk about the choreography for this piece because it's sort of pedestrian movement and 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 uh, I was also I, I wound up talking a lot about the movement in in this Worcester group show I, I did and and I sort of had this thought um, that about dance that I'm sure was not very interesting to the choreographer who spent his whole career thinking about it but for me who hadn't that um, that with an abstract form like dance in front of an audience that isn't plot or narrative driven that really the way you're suturing an audience is by um, is by creating um, a pattern and then breaking the pattern. And so an audience becomes interested in pattern and then they get bored of it once they get used to it and then you have to break it. And so I guess to be like, I guess when I think about how plot driven something is, I sort of come back to that really zoomed out approach, which is that there's a group of people breathing and their brains are, you know, doing things, and they are, need to be sutured into it. And it could be the way to suture them could be as simple as um, creating a pattern and breaking it, or as or as strong and muscular as you know, you know, I you know, uh, I'll I, I'll shoot the man that's been sleeping with you, uh, you know, because uh, I you know want you back. And and I think. Um, uh, I sort of like all. I, I like the whole spectrum of that. And and Walter, just just uh, you were talking about you knew how to find the the uh, uh, balcony, but but what is it about smaller, more abstract uh, um, 
work that, that, that appeals to you or attracts you, I mean. You know what I realized uh, recently for me, which is uh, I really love uh, uh, Sam's production of Back in Anger. I, I really want to um, also do more uh, uh, classic work that's where the author is not around, where it's really I have to be I have to be led into the text right. because there's great liberty in, and there's great inspiration in, in being there at that initial point because I'm. You know, I get very involved in the writing and all that stuff too. But I also want to commit myself these days, and I'm looking at some projects where the text is done, and and, uh, and to see how that works. But what I realized, interestingly, in the past couple of years, because of uh, because of my initial uh, attraction and affection for musicals, that I've always been very uh, attracted to heightened language. And so I'm looking for a place where there's real language and real poetry these days. There's a lot of terrific writing, like Circle Mirror Transformation, like Annie's work. There's a lot of sort of behavioral kind of uh, material out there, and uh, that's I, I I love. But at the same time, I'm really drawn to doing things that perhaps are a bit more. Uh, Muscular in terms of language, and uh, I'm, I'm these days drawn to find some things that are um, uh, thematically a little larger than things I've been working on. Uh, I don't know if I'm answering your question. No, well, I, I don't know if I'm asking a very clear question, but 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 no, but that's very interesting. It's interesting. I, I noticed that I, I used to run a Shakespeare festival and people who had backgrounds in musicals actually found an entry into the language often much more quickly than people who hadn't had that, that experience. They understood the, the purpose of a song. They understood the purpose of a speech. Shall we open it up to uh, the audience and see, does anybody, uh, I think we're, uh, we have a few minutes for some questions. Does anybody have any, any uh, questions? Um, it's so hard to see you right over here. Yes. Um, as writers, I'm sure you guys get notes all the time. So my question is, when did you receive a note that was actually helpful to you in realizing the production, realizing the scene? You mean an a, a, a note given? Either made by an agent, by a producer, by an actor. A, as a director. As a director, when you received it. A comment or a note or feedback is what you mean? Uh-huh. It's really interesting having just uh, coming, I just came back from a large institutional theater where there's a large staff. So um, <laughs> there's uh, a lot of people that can give you a note. So, you know, uh, and I had, um, uh, and there's also, I was at Yale Rep, so there's, it's a school, it's like, it's like you know being a, a, a doctor at a teaching hospital. There's like this whole whole group of students sort of watching you, and the staff of the theater is sort of a big organization. And so I thought a lot about what I kept thinking a lot about what is a really useful way to talk to someone who's in the middle of a process when you're outside of that process. Because I've never been an artistic director or been in the position to really have an effect on other people's work. Um, I really think from where I sit, the most helpful note is always just 
you did an amazing job. Because <laughs> um, truly, that is the most useful thing uh, to hear and, at a vulnerable state and will help you have the confidence to do good work in the future. But I think what I sort of came to, sort of seeing the staff of the theater and the students and all these people sort of watching me from the outside was that, um, was that staying, staying um, broad in how you talk to people who are inside of it is really helpful and getting really specific is really uh, not as useful because um, uh, you know it's, it's the director that's going to be implementing and they can't implement the specific thing someone else has in their head. They can only implement it specifically through them. But you can be really useful to somebody by being an outside eye. Like One thing I learned when I was at the Worcester Group, Liz LeCompte, the director I was working for, would uh, she, she often did the crossword puzzle during rehearsal. Um, and at first I was like, this is just rude. Like You find the people that have devoted their lives to working for you so uninteresting that you do the crossword puzzle while they're performing. And then I realized, actually, it's genius. And what she was doing is um, trying to let go of her incredibly neurotic, obsessive directorial instincts. And that she wanted to do is like mess with everything and change somebody's hair and change their pants in the middle of them working in rehearsal because she's so detail-oriented. And the only way to stop herself from being so zoomed in would be to make herself do the crossword puzzle so that she'd only see the rehearsal kind of sideways through trying to think of what word goes in that spot. And, and, and I sort of think that's what other people are for. They're for making you, you know, get a little distracted from your, from your obsession and see the thing through their eyes. So that, those are the kinds of notes I like to get when someone's like, Oh, I, I, I love, I, it's good to start with something nice, like, I love your, everything you've done. That is a good place to start. And then say, but I had a question about this, or um, I was confused or bored at this point, you know, and then, and then I can figure out why they were confused or bored. Walter, you've had experience both as an artistic director and, and you know, and as a director managing the flow of, of uh, feedback. What are, you, what are your thoughts about this? You know, it's, there's so many different kinds of experiences, but I think if you're really listening, you're getting notes all the time. You can hear what people, what people think is problematic. Uh, the notes I resist are when people say, uh, you know what you should do here? Uh, but very often, they put their finger on where the problem is, but I, I, I don't really like when they think they know what the solution is. Um, but I think when you're in rehearsal, it's so collaborative. You can glean from the actors' questions. You can feel if you're if you're taking the temperature of the room, you can, you're being noted somehow, and you don't know where the smart answer is going to be. I mean, my big thing is you know make me look good. <laughs> if you have a better answer, show me. Uh, but I had one, I mean, one big teaching lesson with Mandy. I was out of town with a big new musical and a scene wasn't working and the producer was spending all the money said, that scene's too long, you got to cut that scene, you got to cut that scene and blah, blah, blah. And I went back home that night, we're out of town with the collaborator and I said, you know what's wrong with that scene? It's unclear. 
Walter? I, I think, um, I always think that the answer is in the script. Um, right now I'm doing a show where I need to stage things. But when we rehearsed Venus and Fur, I got a rehearsal room the size of the room that they were going to be in. Uh, I didn't have an assistant. There was no one in the room but the writer, the author, me, and the stage manager because I felt that the actors needed the safety and, of, of getting into some emotionally really difficult material go into the room and say, today we're going, we're going to have slapping practice. You know, like you have to feel great safety to, and, and you, you do a lot of uh, material like that where the, 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 uh, the psychological, the emotional landscape is so tender and complex and dangerous and toxic um, that you have to most important thing is to create a safe space. I did a, a, a very uh, toxic, uh, rude, tough uh, uh, political thing last summer called the submission, which was really uh, very uh, harsh about race relationships. And, uh, and at the end of the rehearsal, I would watch uh, John McGraw and Tina Wesley, and they, they would hug each other and forgive each other for the rehearsal. Mm -hmm. And I just watched that, and I was so grateful that they felt safe to rehearse that way, and also they knew to end the day that way. And I think, uh, you know, it's evident in Sam's work all the time that the actors feel safe, and, uh, and that's essential, essential. And you know, some material really demands that more than others. Well, I, I want to thank both of you and all of you. Uh, I, uh, I feel as though I could sit for another couple of hours now that I've begun to actually get a beat on really what questions to begin to ask. Uh, but that'll wait for another time. But thank you all. Thank, thank you. you very, very much. Thank you for listening to SDCF Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members, and generous funding from the NEA, the New York State Council on the Arts, and the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council.